0: Welcome to the SNR Podcast. I'm your host, Salima Ismail. In today's episode, we speak with Anne-Marie Heath, better known as Annie, a high-reliability expert at Safe and Reliable. But I think you'll find she's been practicing what SNR has been preaching for much longer than that.
1: So I've always wanted to help people. It's it's who I am. I would always ask my parents to help find places where I could go and volunteer or to do something to help out. I decided to go into healthcare when I was about 19 years old. I dropped out of college and hitchhiked to Mexico to work with El Salvadorian refugees. And on the way, I realized... I wasn't going to really be contributing to the world in a great way through my music. And so I wanted some skills where I could do something. I came back from Mexico and went to school and became a nurse. And after that, then I was in Peace Corps and I was living in Ecuador for two years. So that's quite
0: an adventure.
1: What were some of your takeaways from all of those experiences? I realized that I really needed to work with women because they were the ones that really held health care in their hands. They were the ones who taught nutrition, hygiene, and cleanliness, and clean water. And they were also the ones that accessed the health care system. So after leaving Peace Corps, then I came to the States and worked for a while as a nurse and then went to school to be a midwife. And I guess it's no coincidence that midwifery is really just working with women. It's so interesting because some people choose to be midwives because they're really committed to a beautiful birth or, or a low birth intervention. And I believe all those things, but the real reason was for public health reasons. I felt like working with women gave me access to families and changing health care. I mean, that sounds like an ideal
0: situation, but then you got frustrated working in the U.S. What happened?
1: Um, A few things. I mean, I was working mostly in maternal child health. One was it's so financially driven as a business that it didn't feel like it was really meeting people's needs. It was more focused on the making money. I also found that there was a lot of fear that was embedded in it. So people were making clinical decisions out of fear of getting sued rather than what was really being best for the patient. So it just felt like a, a difficult environment to really provide care that does sound frustrating
0: what were the kind of things that held you back
1: from providing proper care So for example, I worked in a clinic for a pretty impoverished community, and there was just ongoing pressure to see more and more patients each day to meet the bottom line. What the women really needed was someone to sit down with them and really listen to them and to help them figure out their different health issues because they're dealing with so many complex health and social issues. But instead, because of the pressure, we were obligated to see them in 10 or 15 minute slots. That's not long enough. I would see people at the end of the day, so I could have longer visits with them. Or I would go to their homes and visit them in their homes. I, I had one patient who she was really struggling with severe postpartum depression, and we just couldn't get her in for a visit. So I just went with the nurse to her home, and she was living in a basement, and she hadn't bathed. Her mother was taking care of her child, and that's what she needed. She needed somebody who really had the time to listen to her and to be with her. But it was difficult to to create the those times in trying to see the volume of patients that needed to be seen. It sounds like you were burnt out. Yeah. Now that I'm reading the literature and learning more about burnout, I realize in retrospect that that's exactly what was going on for me.
0: So you're in this job in the U.S., you're frustrated, and now we've retroactively diagnosed you with burnout. So is this the point in time where you moved again to make a change?
1: Yeah. So I got a position as a professor of midwifery at the University of Puerto Rico in San Juan. So I picked up my whole family and we moved south to the island. And I lived at Puerto Rico for a couple of years. And that was a truly amazing experience because Puerto Rico doesn't—I didn't have midwives. They had some midwives that were not certified nurse midwives. They had midwives who were taught more by the apprentice model and they were doing some home births. But the middle of the road kind of Western medical hospital system did not have a nurse midwives working within it. So we were introducing the profession to Puerto Rico. So it was a pretty transformative experience for me for a bunch of different reasons.
0: What were some of the things you learned there?
1: One was I was working for my director, who was an amazing leader. She taught me so much about what it means to be a really wonderful leader and to empower your group. And she just offered... All of us junior faculty members, incredible opportunities to be creative, to explore and to try new things. And this changed the course of my life in a lot of ways because out of it, um, when I left my position, I started a nonprofit in the Dominican Republic with those connections that I made that I then worked with for the next 10 years. So I definitely want to circle back to the nonprofit, but I first
0: want to learn a little more about what your mentor taught you about leadership.
1: So her name is Irene De La Torre, and she actually didn't speak very much Spanish, but she had a way, she was, she was very quiet, very astute, really good at reflecting and understanding what was going on in situations. But I think what struck me about her is she had no interest in being the star or the flashy person of the program. She always looked for opportunities for her staff to grow, to develop, and to take the limelight. So as a result, all of us were able to grow tremendously, and she would find whatever resources we needed to be able to grow. Wow. She sounds really supportive, but also really humble. I think often when we think of leadership, we think of leadership as being a super charismatic person that gets all the limelight. And I think actually that undermines your team rather than pulling a team together and pulling a group together.
0: That's a pretty different way of looking at things. Can you elaborate more on what you mean by that?
1: If you're looking at sustainability, if you're looking at a body of work that you want to continue and you want to sustain for a long period of time, it can't be dependent on a single person. It has to be the shared work of a group so that if any one person of that group needs to leave for whatever reason, including the, the leader, if that person needs to leave, there's lots of other people who can step right into those shoes or into that place to keep it going. And Honestly, I only learned this lesson like 10 years later, retrospectively. I didn't learn in the moment.
0: <laughs> so how did you eventually learn that lesson?
1: Well, because le- when I went and I did my nonprofit, I was the lead. And when I left it, it fell apart because I didn't do what she was trying to do. So then, what happened
0: to the program?
1: The way the program was set up is, we would go down anywhere from four to seven times a year with a team of U.S. healthcare professionals, and we would teach. We would work on site. While we were on site in this hospital, there was all this change that would happen. Like the care would change with the way the the Dominican nurses and doctors treated patients. All of that would change when we were on site or when I was on site, and then when. I would leave and other people were there, or just the students were there, the change would disappear. It got to the point that they even started calling it the Annie effect. And what I started to realize was that they were doing this because they were attached to me and they were committed to me as a person rather than to the work and the mission of the work.
0: Okay, so it sounds like to me they were capable of living up to your expectations, but they were having a hard time sustaining those
1: behaviors. And that's just one aspect of it, because the other aspect of it, which I began to understand was the influence of culture on action. And you could easily say, oh, it's just Dominican culture, but it's not because culture impacts how we act and how we take care of patients everywhere. And this is where I started to learn about that, which is what eventually drew me to the work that I do right now. It's that not only did they want to please me, but there were so many influences that when I was on site, I could buffer those other influences. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of difficult human interactions that were happening. And when I was on site, I was able to buffer that for people. But when I left, those influences were so strong that it pulled them back to that type of behavior. They couldn't sustain it without my presence and being supportive. But even other like other volunteers with the nonprofit would stay on site, but I would leave. Then the way people were treated would disintegrate. It would fall apart. So I understand
0: there was uh, this one time where a volunteer reported some of this behavior
1: at the hospital to you. Can you share what happened? She wrote me a letter about a 16-year-old girl who was in labor, and this 16-year-old girl was having an incredibly difficult time with vaginal exams, and vaginal exams are done periodically during labor to check on the dilatation to track labor progress. They're not needed very often. Like you only do them at key points during the during the labor. But this 16-year-old girl was having a really, really difficult time. She found them incredibly painful and difficult. So the volunteer student, this, the Smith student, would sit beside her and hold her hand and talk with her during the exam to help her relax, to try and support her during this difficult time. Well, the nurses and the doctors, they said she got herself pregnant. She needs to have a baby, so she needs to know how to, like, essentially deal with this. And over the period of one hour, she had five forced vaginal exams by five different people to teach her if she's going to get pregnant, then she better learn how to deal with this.
0: Wow. And you're saying that if you were there, this would not have happened?
1: No, never would have happened.
0: But why? I mean... Not to discredit how wonderful you are, but why is there this anti-effect that prevents this from happening to patients when you're around?
1: Well, I think if, if you look at the power gradient, if you, if you look at this from a position of power, I am from the United States. I'm Caucasian. Compared to the Dominicans, I'm rich. I have access to all kinds of resources. I come down with resources. I bring materials. I bring money to the institution. I'm a lead. I'm articulate. I'm outspoken. So these are all reasons why people would want to please me.
0: So does this mean that when you're not there,
1: these patients are really not being treated with respect? I think that many, many of the nurses and the doctors would want to treat people respectfully. And they, and they often did. So I don't want to say this happens all the time. But in situations like this, there was no one who felt that they had the power to speak up, where if I were there, then I my, just my presence would support people in speaking up or I would speak up.
0: And is that because these well-meaning people would face consequences when they would say something?
1: Nurses could get fired by speaking up.
0: Oh, wow. But there was psychological safety when you were around.
1: Exactly. Because I would protect them.
0: Well, I mean, clearly there are many, many more layers
1: to this situation than it originally seems. It's so complex and it's really easy to make it look like the Dominicans are the bad guys in some way. And I think the big lesson I learned, especially then when I came back to the States and saw the impact of culture here in the States, this is universal. These issues are universal. They play out differently but um, these are really universal problems. So
0: there are examples of this
1: happening in the United States? So for example, I'm working in a hospital As in life, and there is amongst the nurses and the providers, how can I say it? There's um, frustration with women who are substance users and get pregnant or, or a history of substance use. So a woman might be on Subutex or she might be currently using heroin or she might be on methadone and she's pregnant. And so she comes in for care and you'll see things like a nurse avoiding going into the room to provide routine care because she feels like this person shouldn't be pregnant. And that behavior is supported by the institution by the culture of the floor, because people on the floor are frustrated with why is she pregnant? She's not gonna be able to keep this baby anyway. She's bringing this child in addicted. Like this is the narrative. So then they're not providing her the same level of care as they would somebody else.
0: It's shocking that there are so many similarities between this situation and the one in the Dominican Republic where these providers are making value judgments on these patients and letting their judgment of these patients' situations and life choices inform the type of care that they receive.
1: And what was interesting in this particular example at this particular hospital is we had a woman come in who was a teacher. She had a master's in education and um, she had a history of, I can't remember, some type of back injury, but so she was on a regular prescription of Percocet. So she delivered an addicted baby. So it was a real opportunity for people to look at their socioeconomic biases around this kind of stuff.
0: So was this like a aha moment for the team? And did
1: it make them reevaluate how they treated addicted patients in the future? Not much. It could have been a huge opportunity. But other than just people kind of chatting in the hallways about it. But not actually leveraged as a teachable moment. And this is where your system can come into play because if you have a system who's looking for learning opportunities, then you can take these types of examples and bring people in to have meaningful discussions about them. But if you have a system that really isn't interested in learning, isn't interested in reflecting and looking at behavior and ways to improve, and these opportunities just go by the wayside.
0: So I understand that while you were running your nonprofit, you did a study that helped you better understand why providers
1: could be inconsistent
0: with their care. Could you say more about that? So
1: we did this program where we did a series of focus groups and trained community health workers to identify pregnant women in the community and to identify just basic danger signs. And then when these women went into labor or if they needed to go to the hospital, the community health worker would call the hospital. They had a contact in the hospital, one of the nurses, and let them know that they were coming. Well, one of the things that came out of this research, which was really interesting, was that the women in the program who had that link about coming in with the community health worker, and they were linked to the nonprofit, they got outstanding care. The patients, the women themselves, said that they were treated like gold. And the theory that Jenny Foster, she's the medical anthropologist I was working with, the theory that. We came out of was that if you are compassionate and you empathize with another person, if you take them in as if they're your family, they're known, they're no longer the other, but they're one of you, then you take care of them as you yourself want to be cared for. But if somebody is anonymous, somebody is not part of the group, part of your clan or part of your family, then you may not treat them as well. And we actually published an article out of this. So it's yet another facet of influence about how people treat patients and how we treat each other. And I think there's so many more ways we could dig
0: into this because we've barely scratched the surface of your education, your accomplishments, your work history. And what's really striking talking to you is that throughout your journey, you've really embodied HRO concepts and systemic concepts and really what Safe and Reliable hopes to achieve. Right? When I first talked to Alan, I was like, I want to work with these guys. <laughs> So how did you end up joining Safe and Reliable? It's so funny. So-
1: When I graduated from school, I should say a position was created for me at this hospital where I was director of clinical team advancement. So, not only was I then working in maternity, but I was working throughout the hospital on how to work with teams. So, there was a grant in our parent organization, and they had extra monies that were available. And this parent organization always worked with safe and reliable. So, they contacted our chief medical officer and said, Hey, we've got this money available we could use by hiring a safe and reliable consultant to come on in. Are you interested? And I said, well, you know what? I'm not too sure because I'm very skeptical about consultants. I've worked with a lot of consultants over the years and and I I didn't want just anybody walking into this institution. So I wanted to interview them first.
0: (laughs) So you were really vetting us. What happened?
1: So I get out a call with uh, Alan and Malik And I fell in love (laughs) on the whole call. I was in the back of my mind saying, oh, my gosh, I want to work with these people. Oh, my gosh, I've got to work with these people. So as soon as I hung up on the call of interviewing them, I went on the website and saw that they had an opening for a position and I applied. (laughs)
0: If you would like to contact Annie, or if you have any questions, please email podcast at srh.care. That's all for today. The Safe and Reliable Podcast is produced by me, Salima Ismail, with the help of Noah Carroccio and Josh Pru. Our theme song, Happy Music, is produced by Monkey Man 535. Special thanks to Annie Heath and Alner Jamal, and an extra special thanks to you for tuning in. See you again soon.